tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 90-second episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on this episode, we are bringing you the Magnolia Hotel, which can be found in Seguin, Texas. And this, Denise, was suggested to us by our listener, Rhonda Mayfield. And she lives nearby, so she actually went out to the property and took a bunch of pictures for us, which we do have up in the show notes today. So thank you so much, Rhonda, for doing that for us. Absolutely. It's always nice when we have actual pictures taken by someone we know rather than just ones we find on the Internet or in a book. So This is a property that is very lively. Not only does it have a rich history, but this place has got a ton of ghosts in it if we are to believe all of the accounts that are out there. But it also has a pretty horrific history as well. So that might be the reason why there's so much hauntings. That's true. And we didn't find a whole lot of newspaper articles and stuff to back up some of the stories. So I'm not sure if all of the claims of things that are happening or have happened at this location are true, but we bring it to you and let you guys decide for yourselves. Before we get into that, we want to make sure you check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They're going to do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. And we did get an email on our last official episode, which was about Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol. And this came from Johanna. She wanted to take us to task a little bit, Denise, about something that I had inferred on that show. And it probably was inferred the same way on our Christmas special. I'm going to read what Johanna said and then kind of explain where I'm coming from. First of all, she let us know that she really does enjoy the podcast, but this is a pet peeve that she has. And so she wanted to submit this for our consideration. She said, in your episode on A Christmas Carol, you chose to make a comment to the effect that celebrating the birth of the Christ child was a ploy to attract pagans. As someone who isn't Christian, I wish to submit for your consideration that such a notion is a garbling of the events and motivations. First, the choice to celebrate Christmas came in many ways as an afterthought. The primary writings of early Christian fathers was on the timing of the crucifixion, as that was arguably the major act the religion is founded on. Since some part of mystical tradition placed emphasis on the coinciding of the date of death and the date of conception, it was said that Mary received her angelic visitation around that time. And uh, she gave us a link to biblicalarchaeology.org, and it's just how December 25th became Christmas would be uh, basically what you could put into search for that. So early on, Christmas did not exist, but came about for one important reason. It was bad to stand out too much in Rome. In all probability, Christmas celebrations began as a way to have a festival near the time of Saturnalia to help Roman Christians blend in. Contrary to popular belief, the written urging of placing churches on old pagan holy sites, etc., did not happen for some time after the initiation of the rough Christmas festivals, meaning that rather than a conniving, clever means of enticing, coercing converts, the inclusion of various cultural attributes that are seen in different Christmas celebrations are folk holdovers, 
which people chose to incorporate into their new holidays. I understand the drive to decouple the religious aspects of Christmas traditions from the folk traditions that were incorporated through syncretism. However, it's unfair to state as fact something that isn't probably all that accurate. And I don't know that I've ever stated something as fact. We've never claimed to be scholars and that we have the definitive of everything out there. I definitely would never claim that. A lot of what we give you is our own conjecture. And I think most people, when you talk to them, it's their own bias on things. Very much so. Uh, The date for Christ's birth was determined before Constantine legalized the faith and his conversion had to take place in order for the church to even begin having enough influence to try to replace pagan faiths through any large means. I understand where she's coming from, and I do apologize if we tried to come across as saying that uh, particularly the Catholic faith was trying to coerce or connive people into uh, believing by using the different cultural aspects of Christmas for that. I think it goes both ways. I think you had people come in and they held on to their traditions, and I think the church adopted a lot of those traditions so that people would be comfortable hanging out with them. To assimilate to the society. Exactly. And like she said, you wouldn't want to stand out too much at that time period because they basically, especially during Roman times, they were killing the Christians in the Colosseum. So you wouldn't want to stand out too much there for sure. So, um, you know, I just leave that for the listeners, uh, whatever you think. But uh, I certainly, again, hope we didn't come across that we were trying to say that the celebrating of Christmas was some kind of way to coerce pagans or something to come into it. I mean, a lot of the practices that we have at Christmas were around long before Christ was ever born. And a lot of those traditions and things are go way back. And we were trying to trace things as far back as we could, you know, whether it was talking about when you would tell ghost stories or when we started putting up trees or exchanging gifts what have you. Yeah, I think the definitive answer is that show Santa Claus is coming to town. (laughs) Yes, that is it. It So if you want to get your real true history. We did have our contest and we did do our drawing on Christmas Day and Tasha Brito was our big winner. So she's going to get a History Goes Bump logo mug and the Pat Fitzhugh book Ghostly Cries from Dixie. And now that we are getting $100 in donations every single month, we'll be having a contest every month. And uh, we'll pick different things that we'll have drawings for, whether it's books or uh, some of our logo gear. We might make some special t-shirts up that you can only get based on winning these contests. That would be fun. Uh, something that we can do cheaply. <laughs> some of the shirts cheap, cheap. And, yeah, some of the shirts over at our Emporium are a little bit more pricey, so... Uh, We love doing the contest, but we don't want them to end up being like, oh, half the money's going to the contest. (laughs) Kind of defeat the purpose of getting donations for the show. Plus, cheap makes sense since we're a couple of chicks. (laughs) Or would that be peep? Whatever. (laughs) Denise, we have some people to welcome the Spectacular crew. We have Tara. Hey, Tara. Amy. Hi, Amy. Katie. And this is an interesting way to spell Katie. It's K-A-Y-D-I. Hey, Katie. Spelled uniquely. And we have Devon. Hey, Devon. And Rick. Hi, Rick. We have a couple of five-star reviews over at iTunes. First up is Mitchellus, five stars. I am a history lover and creepy stuff lover. Thanks, Bizarre States, for pointing me to this. Thank you, Mitchellus. Yes, thank you very much. And Squirrel Load, or Laud, great podcast, five stars. So glad I subscribed. I heard about this podcast from Bizarre States when they listed podcasts they wanted to aspire to. I started listening and have been hooked on this one. I love that this podcast is respectful to a sensitive topic, researches over reading HuffPo articles verbatim, and gives the listeners their time over surfing the net while one talks. Everything is on topic and even sidebars have their place. Thank you for providing a wonderful service. 
Well, thank you, Scroll. We appreciate that. Yes, we do. Thank you. If you guys were unable to join us for the Christmas Eve ghost storytellings around the campfire in our back patio, we do have that video up on YouTube. So if you go to our YouTube channel or if you go over to blab.im and look up History Goes Bump there, you will find it there as well. And then you can watch it now if you'd like. Denise, are you ready to go on down to Texas? I sure am. Well, let's do it. And thank you for that little accent there. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. The Milwaukee Press Club has a very unusual mascot. The Milwaukee Press Club was established in 1885 and is considered the oldest continuously operating press club in America. So it would only be fitting that their mascot would be old as well. But mummified? The club's mascot is a mummified cat named Anibus. He is 100 years old and sits encased in glass above the bar at the club's headquarter, which is named the Newsroom Pub. Until 1950, no one knew where Anibus had come from. It was that year that President Woodrow Wilson's former personal secretary and Washington correspondent Todd Brahani confessed that as a student journalist, he helped distill the mummified cat. It had been originally in the possession of the Wisconsin Historical Society and then passed on to the chief game and fish warden. Newsman Charlie Lush wanted to borrow the cat to display it at a cat show but the warden said that that wasn't possible since the cat was state property. But he also added that if the cat disappeared after hours, there wasn't much he could do. So Lush got Brahami to help him steal the cat. And it was never returned. Instead, it ended up at the press club, and they cleaned it up and named it Anibus. It was a good move for Anibus. He would have been forgotten at the Historical Society, but he has instead been glorified by poets, orators, and statesmen, and is enshrined in the hearts of scholars and savants. Anibus appears to be well-loved, but his position as a mascot for a press club is certainly odd. This history podcast is haunted. This Day in History This Day in History is by Jessica Bell. On this day, December 27th, in 1932, Radio City Music Hall opens. John D. Rockefeller Jr. held a $91 million, 24-year lease on a piece of midtown Manhattan property, properly known as the Speakeasy Belt. Plans to gentrify the neighborhood by building a new metropolitan opera house on the site were dashed by the failing economy, and the business outlook was dim. Nevertheless, Rockefeller decided to build an entire complex of buildings on the property, buildings so superior that they would attract commercial tenants even in a depressed city flooded with vacant rental space. 
Radio City Music Hall was to be a palace for the people. A place of beauty offering high-quality entertainment at prices ordinary people could afford. It was intended to entertain and amuse, but also to elevate and inspire. The shimmering gold stage curtain is the largest in the world. Audiences have thrilled to the sound of the mighty Wurlitzer organ, which was built especially for the theater. Its pipes, which range in size from a few inches to 32 feet, are housed in 11 separate rooms. The hall contains more than 25,000 lights and features four-color stage lighting. Original mechanisms still in use today make it possible to send up fountains of water and bring down torrents of rain. Fog and clouds are created by a mechanical system that draws steam directly from a Con Edison generating plant nearby. More than 300 million people have come to the music hall to enjoy stage shows, movies, concerts, and special events. You're listening to History Goes Bump. The historic Magnolia Hotel is located in Seguin, Texas. Its history includes use as a fort and was built by a man rooted in Texas history as a colonist. The property has existed for 150 years and passed through the hands of many owners and is currently under restoration. Its current state is nothing like the Grand Hotel it had once been. Hotels tell many stories, and this one has stories that include murder and prostitution. Spirits are at unrest here. Join us as we explore the history and the hauntings of the Magnolia Hotel. Seguin, Texas has a small town feel with streets lined by Queen Anne-style homes and trees. It is east of San Antonio and is one of the oldest towns in Texas. Frontier Rangers settled in the area in 1838 and named it Seguin after Colonel Juan N. Seguin, who was a Tejano that fought against the dictator Santa Ana with his Anglo counterparts. German immigrants arrived in the 1840s. It was at the same time that Seguin became a stagecoach stop, and the place where this stop was located was the Magnolia Hotel. The original Magnolia Hotel was a two-room log cabin that was built by James Campbell in 1840 and used as a fort. Campbell was an original DeWitt colonist. The DeWitt colony was one of the main colonies that helped to settle Texas. It was named for Green DeWitt, who had petitioned the Mexican government to set up a parcel of land for hundreds of Catholic families and many Mexican nationals. After a couple of attempts, the petition was agreed to, and the area was surveyed and a capital was chosen. In 1826, the colony was attacked by Indians on a horse raid, and the capital was moved. Despite being the second most successful Anglo-American settlement in Texas, the colony soon faltered when DeWitt was unable to get enough families to come. The colony later became a county. Not much is known of Campbell's part in the colony other than he was with it early on. Campbell went on to become a Texas Ranger and fought as a Confederate soldier in Company D of the 4th Texas Regiment in John Bell Hood's famous brigade. He also co-founded Seguin as one of the 33 signers of the charter that established the town in 1838. In 1844, Joseph Johnson bought the property and added a concrete building to the back. The log cabin was converted to a stagecoach stop, and the concrete building was opened as a hotel. An interesting note about Seguin is this use of concrete as a building material. It was unique, and before long, Seguin had the largest concentration of concrete buildings in the country, and some would even say the world. 
Now, this is just a small town in Texas, Denise. Can you imagine it had this kind of reputation of having all of these concrete buildings? And this is back in the 1840s. I just thought that that was fascinating. The type of concrete used was called limecrete, and it was developed by John Park, who was a chemist and inventor who moved to Seguin in the early 1840s. He built the hotel addition that became the Magnolia Hotel. It is the oldest concrete building in town. A bell was rung every time a stagecoach came to the stop, and it is believed that the bell originally came from the Alamo. It was found in the San Antonio River in 1845. By 1847, Jeremiah Calvert owned the hotel, and his daughter married the nephew of President Andrew Jackson in the hotel that year. Calvert sold the property to Dr. William Reed in 1850, and he ran the hotel for 10 years. In 1853, the log cabin was replaced by a two-story frame wood building. It was built in the Greek Revival style. Thomas Dickey Johnson took over in 1860, and he held the property until 1900. That same year, the stagecoach arrival bell stopped being rung, and it was donated to the Daughters of the Republic of Texas. During the time that the hotel was a stagecoach stop, it had been the center of town. The stagecoaches not only brought people but it brought the mail and newspapers and other goods. So it was sad to see that come to an end. The hotel also fell out of its premier position as the hotel to stay in in the early 1900s when other hotels were built that advertised that they were fireproof while the Magnolia was not. Although I would say the concrete part of it would still be fireproof. I would think so, (laughs) yes. The hotel passed through several hands until the 1930s when the Lanham family acquired the property. The family decided to use the first floor as their residence, and they rented out the second floor as apartments. They did this for 65 years. Then the building fell into disrepair. During that time, it was empty. It became a haven for homeless people and drug users. Aaron O. Wallace, author of Haunted New Braunfels and Haunted Seguin, purchased the hotel in 2013 and has been working to restore the property. Two rooms have been finished and an old porcelain sign found in the building hangs outside the door. And based on these pictures that Rhonda took, it appears that the entire outside has been refurbished with getting the peeling paint off of there. It's been repainted. It looks like we have brand new windows because in the original photos, there's a lot of broken windows and uh, it just really looked like it was beat up, but it looks very nice on the outside right now. Mm-hmm. It sure does. And she also, in one of the pictures, she took a picture outside the original stagecoach bell that was donated to the Daughters of the Texas Republic, came on back to the Magnolia Hotel because it is sitting outside there up on a pole, and there's a sign that's describing its use underneath it. So it's come back to its uh, home. So I thought that was very cool. Very, very cool. And again, thank you, Rhonda, for taking those pictures. We appreciate it. And I looked at all of them, and I didn't see anything strange in the windows. But apparently a lot of people have seen some strange things in the windows. The Magnolia Hotel has a reputation for being haunted, and there are several reasons why this may be the case. Wilhelm Faust, who was commonly known as William, had grown tired of his wife. He had actually become interested in her sister. He decided that the best way to end his marriage would be to murder his wife, and he chose one of the favorite weapons of choice in the 1870s, an axe. It was 1874, and he had traveled to Seguin and was staying at the Magnolia Hotel on business. His wife hated staying alone, so she stayed with some friends in New Braunfels. 
This was a typical routine, and William knew it well. He knew that his wife would be staying in the friend's daughter's room and that she would be sleeping on the floor. In the middle of the night, he stole a horse from the Magnolia Hotel and rode to the friend's house. He broke into the house and swung the axe at the body on the floor. He had made a terrible mistake, though. The daughter, Emma, had switched places with his wife, and she was the one on the floor. His wife was in the bed. So he swung the axe at the bed. As he went for another swing, Emma's brother came into the room and scared William away. His wife had not been killed by the attack, but he did blind her. William was caught and sent to prison for life. He was shot and killed while in jail in 1876. So he didn't spend much time in jail, about two years there. And I don't know how long the trial was. So he was killed pretty quickly after he was sent to jail. And just a real dirt bag. A lot of people surmise that he had wanted to do away with his wife pretty much from the time that they'd gotten married. And this was, I guess the ploy was instead of him supposedly being away on business and then riding back home and then offing her, I don't know if that was too much of a distance. And that's why he thought, well, this will work out perfectly for her to go stay at her friends, which is not too far away. I'm not sure, but you know, if it would look like, oh, some other stranger came in and did this, but Emma was a 12-year-old girl who ended up dying because of this. And And how disgusting anyway, because even if they hadn't switched places, just killing your wife in front of a 12-year-old girl would have been a horrific, heinous crime as well. friend's house. I mean, how horrible. Here, you can have this, you know, dead body that's been all hacked up in your home. William is not at rest, and for some reason, he's chosen the Magnolia Hotel as his final resting place. People have reported strange smells in the room he had once occupied, and a shadowy figure has been seen in the window of the room. Emma has joined him, many claim. Is it because she is tied to her murderer somehow in the afterlife? Or is this young girl that reportedly haunts the hotel someone else? This little girl ghost roams the hallways. And again, it's so hard to know exactly. You'll have either an EVP where people identify themselves, these spirits, or psychics come in and identify them. So I don't know how they know for sure that this would be William and Emma as two of the ghosts that are haunting here. Because if you believe that people would more likely haunt a place that they died in, well, he would be in the jail and she would be at her home. So I I don't know why they were attracted back to this Magnolia Hotel. Yeah, sometimes you wonder if it's just because there was a horrific crime that took place close by a place that's haunted, so they just kind of try to attach that to the ghosts that might be there. Now, as we talk more about people who've died here and other experiences in this location, it makes you wonder if there's something about the location that has caused it to be attractive to spirits, and that's why they stay here. So maybe just any spirit in the general vicinity. It's like a beacon or something for some reason. Part of it could be what it's built from. Could the limecrete that part of the building is constructed from be a conduit for the supernatural activity, just as limestone can be? Yeah, because that limecrete, that's what it's made from. It's limestone is the part of the lime, and then the rest is sand and clay and all that other stuff. Right. And as people know, if they've been listening for a while, we've talked about limestone is definitely a conduit usually for, for activity. So that could be it. 
Now, keep in mind that the part of the Magnolia Hotels that's the two-story wooden structure is the main part of the building, and it seems to be the main haunted area is not the concrete building, which would be built from the lime crate. So I'm not sure, and I don't know if possibly the basement maybe is built from lime crete. So that could be where the lime crete is, is in the basement. Or they came to the older lime crete hotel and said, ah, this is shabby, let's stay at the nicer place. Yeah, I mean, they're connected, so they, I guess you could roam back and forth too. <laughs> like, hey, we're going to go, we're, we're going to step up here. <laughs> An Englishman who had been a traveling salesman was staying at the hotel and he committed suicide by cutting his own throat. Amelia was a young child who passed away in her sleep. Both of these rooms are upstairs, and it is believed the spirits of these two people haunt the upstairs. Lights have been caught on video flickering and turning off and on. Another room upstairs seems to harbor a malevolent spirit. People are very uncomfortable in that room and have felt pressure tighten around their throats. The basement is creepy and has spirits at unrest. There are various noises that are heard down there that seem to be more than just shifting ground or other natural sounds. I watched a couple of videos and some of the noises that they hear downstairs, this would be a place that they would go, not necessarily just for protection from, say, a tornado coming, but Indian raids is one of the main reasons why they would go down into this lower area because it was kind of hidden away. So it was almost a, a secret passageway, I guess you could say. And when you're down there, you would hear noises that, almost sound like uh, Indians attacking or galloping or something. So I don't know if it's you're hearing maybe something that would be the ground that is a natural sound that you're thinking sounds like horses galloping. I'm not sure. Huh. I wonder if sounds could be residual like spirits. It does make you wonder or if it, you know, the sounds are trapped in the stone somehow. Yeah, because, I mean, residual spirits are just like a mist or whatever, they, or a spirit that you see just replaying the same thing. But I wonder if sounds can be caught in the same way as a residual energy. Anything is possible. Absolutely. And then I also watch these lights flicker. It's flickering in a way that wouldn't be like somebody standing there, say, flicking the light switch up and down. Sort of like the flashlight at the yeah. auditorium? Yeah, where it's it's blinking in such a way, but it's not in like a set routine like, up, down, up, down, up, down, on, off, on, off, on, off. It's like on, off, off, on. You know, it's it's just like a, it's not a, a set flickering. It's very weird. Almost as if like, say like you were screwing a light bulb into a light and you didn't get it in all the way. So it's kind of catching and kind of not. And so it kind of does that little flickering as it's catching and not catching. Well, but there's nothing wrong with the wiring in that room. There's nobody that will be in that room. And there are news stations that have gone out there with some of their reporters. And the reporters have had these experiences and caught the lights on film. And in this room that has the malevolent spirit, the owner, Erin, uh, won't even go in there because it just has such a horrible feeling in there. But she invites other people if you want to try. And a reporter walked through there and all of a sudden she went, I totally felt like something was tightening on my throat and I lost my breath for a moment. That is interesting. It's just talking about this reminds me of Ripley's Auditorium up in St. Augustine because there's the the room with the evil Mr. X mm -hmm. guy where it does choking. Mm -hmm. And then and then with the flickering light, just our last experience there with that flashlight, because it didn't just go off, it kind of dimmed and then got bright and then dimmed bright and then finally just kind of faded off. It's kind of the same kind of thing that you're talking about. So I wonder if that's just how ghosts operate. And I always have the same question when we hear these stories. 
is why is something locked into one room? Why is that malevolent spirit just in that room and doesn't have the ability to just roam anywhere in the building or outside? And they've caught multiple pictures in the windows of different children, adults. You almost wonder if like the other spirits can keep a spirit kind of in solitary, so to speak. Yeah, like somehow they have him trapped in that room so that he can't get out of there. That that's the only, I don't know, but but that happens a lot where it's just one room mm-hmm. and the rest of it, there might be spirits, but the bad one or the is in the one place. Exactly. Because even that place we went to that had the, the voodoo room, everything was just in that room and then mm-hmm. all the other spirits were outside of that room. Exactly. And so I've always wondered why something would be centralized in one room. And maybe there's something we don't know. For example, there's this woman who was called Miss Adela, and she was a fortune teller who had lived there. So I sometimes wonder if we don't know because it hasn't been put on record that maybe they had somebody who came there that performed some kind of a ritual that trapped something somewhere. Oh, that could be as well. You have to stay in this room. You can't come out of there. Not sure. She's one of the more famous haunts there. Several orphan children died at the hotel, and they seem to have never left. They'll put a ball down on the floor and put a box around it so that you can tell when it's being moved, and sure enough, it'll move. So I sometimes wonder if people are thinking it's Emma, but it's really just one of these orphan children, and they're interpreting it as Emma. Not sure. A young woman was waiting for her beau to show up on a stagecoach, and he never did arrive, so she died of a broken heart. Willie was a young woman who took her own life in the hotel and her child was with her and she took her child's life as well. So a lot of suicides here. Uh, the list of deaths is extensive at this property, leading to an extensive list of ghosts here and uh, makes us wonder why there are so many here in this location. Uh, strange myths have been picked up along with those faces in the windows that I talked about earlier. And a lot of the pictures are very compelling that I've seen where it's like, I don't know how they would have faked that. The owners reported just last week, they do have a Facebook page, quote, seems the second floor of the Magnolia Hotel was rather active yesterday for our AC and electrical contractors. (laughs) It's always the poor guys who come in to do the work that are the ones that get hit with stuff. The antique pictures that are sitting on the mantel kept flying off whenever the contractors entered the room. They placed them back only to discover they were once again tossed off. And they're probably thinking... What's going on? We're going to get in trouble for these pictures being (laughs) on the floor. Don't break the glass. After these several incidents, they refused to be alone (laughs) upstairs, but thankfully they did finish the job, end quote. So good good on them that they didn't just take off running and say, forget it, we're not doing the job, because that's what happens a lot of the time in these locations. But it does make you wonder why they refused to be alone upstairs. So was it just like they had an AC contractor and then an electrical contractor and they each came separately by themselves and so they wanted somebody to be with them? Or was it a couple guys and they were like, we want the owner to be with us? Because, I don't know, maybe they thought the ghost would be nice to them. Yeah, who who knows? That that would freak me out, though. I don't know if I'd stay and finish the job. I wouldn't. If something's throwing pictures, I, it doesn't say that it was throwing them at them. But even throwing them on the floor, I'd be like, you know, if something's throwing stuff, I probably don't want to be here. How much are you paying me for this? Probably not enough. <laughs> Probably definitely not enough unless you're the ghost hunters. (laughs) (laughs) Then they're excited. Yeah. And the one guy, uh, one of the girls said, hey, I think it was a relative of hers. So she said he was really excited about doing the work there. So, you know, some people, after the fact, it's always fun for us to have the stories to tell. So that might be the same thing for them is that it was fun after the fact now to tell the stories. Not necessarily fun during. So the Magnolia Hotel has a long and rich history and has been the scene of tragedy. 
Has this led to the house having supernatural activity? Is the Magnolia Hotel haunted? That is for you to decide. And there was a madam who had lived across the street back in the 1800s, and there were reports that she would take some of the clients over to the Magnolia Hotel, so it wasn't a quote-unquote brothel, but it was used by a madam. house of ill repute. Yeah, she would occasionally... I guess take the clients there. So she don't know that some rooms by the hour. Exactly. <laughs> so that hotel, I guess, didn't have any regulations against that. Uh, don't know that that lends anything to the house being haunted or anything of that nature or adds that much to the history. But I thought I would throw that in there too, that that was something that reportedly happened there. Little lively side of the history. On our next episode, we're going to be delving into probably the worst asylum we have ever heard about Denise. This is the Eloise Asylum, which is near Detroit. First of all, Detroit's a rough city. And so who knows? It probably has a little bit of a rough history. But asylums are always creepy. So I guess I will get ready to be totally creeped out. (laughs) Yeah, this one is uh, located pretty close to Ann Arbor. And we are joined by writer Bill Clayton, who had discussed this in an article he'd written a long time ago. And he'd sent me an email saying, I don't know if you'd be interested in this article I wrote on the urban legends of Detroit, but I thought I would share it with you. And so I was looking over it. Not only did it have really interesting urban legends, and he's going to share a couple of those with us, but I started looking at this Eloise Asylum that he had mentioned. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this place is, whoa, amazing. Uh, Just Everything bad that you could think of. If there's an asylum that would be in a horror movie, it would be this asylum. Absolutely. And so Bill's going to share the history and the hauntings about that. And uh, we'll share some of our own research about it. We're also going to talk about the cemetery that's near there called the Butler Cemetery. So it'll be a great show. Hope you guys can join us for that episode. We're very thankful that you have joined us for this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Executive producers of this episode have been... Dave and Ann, Melissa, Levi, Nicole, Jade, Sharon, Cricket, April, Katie, Stephen, Heather, Amy, Tanya, Leanna, Laura, Seth, Tracy, Josh, Barbara, Ashley, Griffin, David, Wendy, Dan, Janice and Roger and new to our executive producers is John Venicia. And we also want to send out a thank you to Homeworks who sent us a one-time donation and thanked us for helping him or her through their chemo treatments, Denise. So we send our well wishes out to you and hope that you get a full recovery from whatever you're battling there. Absolutely. Thank you to our executive producers. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M-Writing Podcast. Society 13. Rebuilding society. One podcast at a time. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.